Welcome to Expert Insights. This session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on Wednesday, 21st of June, 2023. The topic is intergenerational sharing of culture for improved social and emotional well-being. On the panel, we have Madison O'Grady-Lee, clinical psychology PhD candidate at Black Dog Institute and UNSW and Dalai Lama Peace Fellow. Anthony Jaja, peer support worker for Cape and Torres Health Hospital and Health Service. And Uncle Joe Miller, elder and lived experience representative. Chairing the session, we have Dr. Sarah Barker. Okay, welcome everybody to Intergenerational Sharing of Culture for Improved Social and Emotional Wellbeing as part of our celebration of NAIDOC Week in the lead up to NAIDOC Week. Um, So a warm welcome to everyone. And to begin with, I would like to acknowledge country. Black Dog Institute would like to acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as Australia's first people and traditional custodians. We value their cultures, identities and continuing connection to country, waters, kin and community. I'm in Nam or Melbourne and I'd like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people as the traditional custodians of country here and to extend that respect to the traditional custodians of all the lands where people are zooming in from today, as well as to pay my respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here with us today and we hope their wisdom can be with us here today. We pay our respects to elders, past and present, and are committed to making a positive contribution to the mental health and well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Australia. I'm Sarah Barker. I'm a clinical psychologist. I would like to hand over to our panel and ask each of them to introduce themselves. So, Maddie, would you like to introduce yourself first, please? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Sarah. So, hi, everyone. My name's Maddie, and I'm currently completing the combined Masters of ClinSac program and PhD program at UNSW and the Black Dog Institute. So, my research focuses in on how can we improve measurement um, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people's mental health, in particular, what does it look like when a young person is unwell and Where is that happening in their life and how can we best support them through those periods by enabling better measurement? Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today, Maddie. Anthony, can I ask you to introduce yourself? Hello, everyone. I'm Anthony Shaja. I join you today from Thursday Island here up north in the Torres Strait. I am half Indigenous. Um, Dad's Aussie Lebanese, Mum's Torres Strait, with connections to many tribal groups of this beautiful part of the world I live in. And I have connections to the Wagadagam tribe of Mobiag Island. So as you mentioned, I'm the new peer worker with the mental health and other drugs service team at the Torres and Cape Hospital and Health Service. And I have lived experience with the mental illness, but great to be joining you all today and acknowledgements to um, all traditional landowners also and to elders um, past and present. Thank you so much, Anthony. Uncle Joe, welcome. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, my name's Joe Miller. I'm uh, a a Kuma on my mum's side and uh, her country is around, uh, runs from evil in Dirranbandi and up to about Wyander in Queensland. Uh, and my father's side is uh, Abidra Man, which is in the Carnarvon Ranges, north of Roma. 
At the moment, I'm working in Gunnedah in New South Wales, uh, which is Camilleroy country, and uh, I'm working for education here. Um, I uh, have been involved with mental health uh, in Queensland, uh, also down here. I'm a, uh, a state award winner for mental health in New South Wales and uh, for child protection in uh, foster care of the year in Queensland. So I've got a few strings to me, though. You sure do, uh, Uncle Joe. Thank um, you for joining us and for um, sharing your expertise with us today. We really appreciate it. So um, a warm welcome to you all. The 2023 NADOC theme for is for our elders. So what are the important roles of elders in community? Well, when I was a young fellow growing up, elders played a great uh, role in my life to make me the man of what I am today. Um, they give me guidance, uh, taught me right from wrong, because I had to sit down and listen to them. Uh, there was never, because I was, it was explained to me that everything in the on this earth has been put there for a reason, and you only take what you actually need. You do not kill a kangaroo just for the fun of it. Um, you must use it. Uh, so that was the philosophy that I uh, grew up with. Uh, I'm very spirituality, uh, and uh, that came from many years of looking into the uh, sky, uh, and I could see. I can see things in the clouds. I see things on on a, on a mountain, um, and I can probably uh, animal the animal kingdom has always guided me or what's around what's happening around me. That makes sense. Um, so um, elders have played a great part in imparting all their knowledge of what I know anyway. Yeah, great, Uncle Joe. Thank you. Maddie and Anthony. Maddie. Yeah, I think I really echo um, Uncle Joe's statements there. I think elders play a really crucial role in community uh, and they are really the knowledge holders and keepers. They are the people who are sharing information, um, you know, through the generations and keeping our culture strong and alive. Uh, they're survivors, they're nurturers, they're uh, the people who protect the community um, and particularly protect protect the young people who are in that community, just as Uncle Joe um, was saying, they're the ones who are sharing that knowledge and giving that guidance um, to keep kind of spiritually and emotionally strong. And they're also there, I think, to kind of, you know, call you out, to keep you in line um, and to show you the right way. And I think, yeah, they just really hold a really, really crucial and important part um, in all of our communities. Thanks, Maddie. Anthony, I can see you're in agreeance. What, what are your thoughts? Yes, totally in agreeance, mm. um, Sarah, with Maddie and Uncle Joe there, because I believe elders are very important. They're highly respected in our communities. Um, 
their knowledge is priceless, valuable when it comes to culture, especially for direction. Um, their input is highly relied upon, being corrected through songs and dances, survival mechanisms, storytelling, and um, they um, have um, knowledge that's been passed on to them that they can share with the generations to come. So um, once upon a time, as a musician myself, being corrected with um, cultural songs, approaching the elders is a truly valuable experience to get it right and uh, having their knowledge passed on. Um, and um, as the heads of tribes and families, if you've given them the respect, the rest of the family and tribe will follow also, I believe, yeah. So, mm. Great, Anthony. Thank you. That's great, mate. Little yeah. yeah. So if we think about what social and emotional well-being means to each of you, what, what, how, would you how would you describe that? What does it mean to each of you? And how is it different to maybe Western ideas about health and mental health? Social emotional well-being to me is everybody's included because you can't exclude anybody because you're isolating the sickness of whatever that community, whatever community or family. So everybody's got to be included and to address the social side of things. Um, it's like this. It's if you live in a in a community and there's a stack of car thieving going on, to make that you've got to include everybody in that community to fix that problem. It's not one group; it's everybody because it's everybody's problem. There was an old saying that it takes a, a village to raise a child. It takes that saying means right across the board if we're going to address our issues. And if everybody's included, that is a very becomes a strong community. Uh, and health communities, Aboriginal communities, uh, they were very, very strong. But sadly, a lot of them have fallen down lots of reasons and uh, but the ones that have got themselves made themselves stronger they're going back to the old ways that everybody has got a say in what's happening in that community then they built it back up and the well-being of that um, and that's the well-being of the whole community not just one family it's every family plays a role yeah, thanks, Uncle Joe. Maddie. Yeah, so I think for me, like social and emotional well-being has been a really important concept to my research, but also the way that um I interact in the world um, and I interact as a psychologist too. I think what's really important about social and emotional well-being is that it's this holistic understanding of health that considers the person, their community and their history. And I think it's really important when we are looking at MOB that we take those factors into consideration as, you know, 
Uncle Joe was saying, when one young person might be unwell, it's not actually about that young person. So often there's a community, um, you know, effort that needs to go into supporting our people or, you know, there's other things happening in that community which might be impacting on certain groups, you know, mental health at that time. But I think particularly the seven domains of social and emotional well-being that we need to really consider with body, emotions, family and kin, community, culture, country and spirituality and ancestors. I think it's really important that we look at all of that because it allows us then to look at the person as a whole. And really we know that to have strong social and emotional well-being, you know, we need to be strong in all of those factors. Um, and I think that's really where it differs to Western ideas because often we tend to isolate the problem um, into kind of one separate area. Um, and we might isolate that as that a person has come to us because they're having difficulty with their mental health or they're having difficulty in this with their physical health or this area. But social and emotional well-being really looks across all of the domains and seeing the strengths, you know, where there are those um, strengths and how we can continue to support that, but also where there might be some areas that we need to provide support um, for that person to give them the kind of best start. Um, and so I think that's really the difference is that it's this strengths focused approach, but it's also looking at the whole person, the historical context and the community context that they're in, because we know that you can't separate those factors, especially if you want to ensure that um, we are doing assessments, we are doing treatment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people right. Great. Thanks, Maddie. Anthony. Well, social and emotional well-being plays a huge part in my life. As I mentioned at the start, I do and have been diagnosed with the mental illness for some quite some time now, and I live with this every day. So being able to move forward um, with self-care is important, um, whilst having the help on my side also. So what I found seeking help was important when I was really unwell. And Western um, ideas regarding mental health, I believe, are just as important for me, having a balance um, in order to move forward. Um, as you can imagine, I live in an area where there is a high population of families, um, Indigenous families. So working with bo both sides and merging the two has worked for me. Um, in the past, stories I've heard around mental health here in the Torres Strait, when a loved one usually was mentally ill, it was often hidden. And coming to terms and accepting my um, default was the hardest part of my life. But with the help and guidance of health professionals and community as a holistic approach, I, I was able to live an active, healthy lifestyle and continue on to this day. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you very much. So, Maddie, your um, research, your PhD research has looked at tools to accurately measure social and emotional well-being in First Nations young people and also at the experience of life interference with social and emotional well-being. Can you tell us about your research and why these tools are so vital? Yeah, of course. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, so my PhD looks at how we can better measure mental um, ill health and social and emotional well-being for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people. And I think what particularly drew me to this um, topic when I knew that I was going to start a PhD is that I wanted to do something that would give back to MOB. And for me, I really have enjoyed as a researcher and as a clinician how important accurate tools are for measurement and how often we rely on these. And I think what really stood out to me was the fact that we don't really have 
many tools at all to measure social and emotional well-being um, for MOP. And often the tools that we are using have been adapted for use and often aren't the greatest kind of tool we could be using, or they're just using generic tools, which actually don't even account for social and emotional well-being. They don't take in Indigenous ways of knowing and being, which we know is really crucial because if we want to help someone and support someone, we need to actually understand what's going on. And the current ways that we're doing that aren't really working. So my PhD is looking at a little bit more of a niche area, which is this concept called life interference. Life interference is what happens when somebody is unwell and how their lives are impacted on the daily from their symptoms. So for example, with a lot of young people um, who might experience anxiety and depression, you'll often see that there's going to be an impact on school, whether that be absenteeism or that be um, dropout of extracurricular um, activities and engagements. And so there's been no work done on life interference for MOB. Uh, and so that's where my PhD looks at how can we measure this concept of life interference? Because we do expect that it's going to be different um, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people. And we expect that culture is going to have a really big role in that. So um, my PhD is kind of looking at creating a tool that will be able to measure that. And as part of my um, studies, we've been looking at the current tools that have been used um, to measure mental ill health in um, young people. And like I said earlier, just unfortunately, the tools that we're currently using as clinicians and as researchers just aren't really accurately um, assessing for that kind of cultural and Indigenous ways of knowing and being. So I think it's really important that as clinicians, we use tools that have actually been validated, but also that we create more awareness of what it means to have a tool that is actually culturally appropriate for MOP and what that looks like um, in addition to trying to create you know, better ways that we can assess or understand these concepts that come from First Nations people directly. Yeah, what awesome research. So good, Maddie. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, to, thanks for sharing that. So many people may not be as connected to culture and identity for many reasons, including the stolen generation and intergenerational trauma. What are some of the ways elders support social and emotional wellbeing in communities? From my own experience, uh, there's lots of reasons. Uh, I was, I was, uh, the other day, we, uh, I was, uh, we had a meeting and the statistics of uh, Aboriginal people have, have actually rose. And that's what one reason of that has rose is because a lot of families have actually come out of the woodwork that they are and identified as Aboriginal people. But there's a catch spot for that also. Uh, it's a catch-22. Some of these families that are lived in towns that NIU they never identified, but they do now. And they would, it goes back to the fear of if once, uh, if you identified as Aboriginal people, your rights to be able to travel around and what have you uh, was taken away from you and put on a mission and what have you. And it's become, that stuff has become generational trauma. Uh, but now that they are identifying, some of the old uh, 
people that are alive can remember those families. Yeah, they were white, but they fed us. Uh, they used to go out and work and they used to bring us food onto those missions. So they, the, those oldies, and this is where the, the storytelling comes in. Um, the, those stories have been kept alive by those young, those oldies family that can actually verify uh, that they are an Aboriginal family and can get their, uh, their Aboriginality uh, certified. Um, so there's a big role and my generation and uh, education has been an important thing, a part and parcel of my life. Uh, my mum and my father was illiterate, and my mum, um, her uh, family passed away when she was a young girl, and she read her, she was the eldest in the family, she was only 10 year old, but she read her brothers and sisters, they were all younger. But uh, we were, education in my family was uh, very, very important. Because mum's uh, first cousin, he was the first Aboriginal teacher in New South Wales and he ended up in Inspector's School, Uncle Victor. Um, so education has been, to my generation, uh, we were made go to school because of the fear that if we didn't go to school, the welfare kept in and stepped in and took us. And that's created a, uh, another lot of the stolen generation. Uh, kept fueling the fire. So um, the elders that uh, were older than me, they I was taught all these things. Uh, and I try and impart that knowledge to young mothers today that it's important. The only way that Aboriginal people are going to uh, get ahead is we get educated. Because education is the most important thing, and um, I've, we've got—I'm proud. My cousins, their uh, uh, daughters—it's um, uh, a, a doctor. Uh, so the education—I've got other relations that are uh, DPP. Uh, prosecutors, uh, so they wouldn't have get, got there if they didn't get educated. So, the, so education is, you know, and it's our role as uh, as an as an elder in the community is to impart that knowledge and try and get through to the younger generation how important it is. Thanks, Uncle Joe. Great messages, Maddie and Anthony. You'd like to get yeah, respond to that the role of elders in 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 communities um, with yeah sharing that sharing that knowledge. Um, yeah, I think elders play a really crucial role in sharing that knowledge and supporting social and emotional uh, well-being. I think for me personally, I found out that I was Aboriginal when I was in my late teens and elders played a really important role for me when I went to university in helping me to connect more with my culture and learn things that I otherwise wouldn't have had access to. And there's a plethora of research that shows us that when 
um, Aboriginal people are connected to their community, connected to their culture and their identity, their mental health, their social and emotional well-being outcomes are much stronger. So we know that it's really important um, that First Nations people have this connection and it can be really difficult for people to access for numerous factors like you identified, Sarah. So I think it's really important that as service providers, we're looking for ways that we can support the First Nations people we work with to connect further with their culture. And I think elders play a really important role with that because they are the knowledge holders and knowledge sharers. And so I think it is, you know, quite important that um, as service providers, we're connecting with the elders in our community so we can best support our First Nations clients to connect further in um, with their culture. Yeah, great. Thanks, Maddie. Anthony. Yes, um, well, I'd just say some of the stories we've been told um, due to past trauma often can um, affect a young one's perception or view on the world. But I believe, strongly believe, without these stories being told to us, um, we're unable to be aware of the history, what it was really like. So some of the songs and dances they've choreographed and made um, often tell of events that took place so not being able to speak openly I guess about these these problems but sharing them through songs and dances have um, been passed on to the youth and when you hear many of these songs you hear the feeling in the song of the story, depending on whether it was a good or a bad story. And um, I'd often be surprised when an elder would share with me something um, or a song with me. Um, it would be relevant to how I was feeling. And uh, it would often be the answer I was looking for. So um, we still found a way to share these stories, regardless of um, what went on. Yeah. Yeah, great, great. Thank you, Anthony. So, Maddie, as a researcher, tell us about some of the effects of elders sharing culture and cultural knowledge that you've noticed on social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Yeah, so um, as part of my PhD studies, um, I've been doing some qualitative interviews with service providers. Um, and this definition we've kind of included from elders to psychologists to teachers, whoever plays that kind of healing role in a young person's life, their carers and young people. And it is only in its preliminary stages, but something that's come out quite strongly from a lot of the young people and service providers I've spoken to is when um, a young person has been unwell, it's been really difficult for them to engage and connect with culture. And there's been a couple of different mechanisms around that. There's been this kind of withdrawal from cultural events um, due to being unwell. There's been this um, fear of engagement and not knowing quite how to engage due to um, being unwell. And we know that when that connection is lost to culture and to identity, um, social and emotional well-being outcomes are much poorer. And I think what I've been hearing and what we're hearing on this um, panel right now is that elders really do play that role in connecting particularly young people to their culture um, and especially a young person who may have come from a family that isn't well connected to their culture for, you know, whether it be the stolen generation or there being lack of knowledge within that family system um, and then this young person is wanting to connect in. 
an elder plays that really important role in sharing that cultural knowledge. And often we see is that by getting back into culture, connecting with community events, being around other mob, that young people begin experience um, stronger social and emotional well-being. So I think that's really the key here is that we know when we connect young people, connect all people to culture and to identity, their outcomes are much stronger. Um, and I think um, there is a lot of research emerging in this space. It's looking at the importance of cultural strengthening programs for particularly young mobs outcomes. And it all is pointing in the direction that we know that that um, strength of cultural connection is really key to supporting social and emotional well-being. Great. Thanks, Maddie. Thank you. So some of you have talked to me about how elders can play a role in saying if an organisation or person is safe and trustworthy. How can health service providers and health workers connect more with elders and encourage inter intergenerational sharing in their services and work with people? Uncle Joe, I'll start with you. The old, you know, like we, we talk about closing the gap. Now, I worked uh, in nearly 20 years with health uh, in Queensland, with mental health in Queensland and New South Wales. But to me, um, you, we're talking about health. Uh, we need an Aboriginal person uh, in ED meets that family when they first turn up, uh, then not follows through when that person is discharged, that that person that has been discharged is followed up, but also the the old family is supported. Um, and one of the greatest um, things that I came across was uh, passing on of, of somebody within a family uh, and the old family turns up at the hospital uh, and the health system was ex expected to support that, that family uh, and a lot of the cases um, they, some of you know that the hospitals that I was involved with, they'd never had um, a plan of who to contact, of uh, what they had to do, and um, when and I was involved at Tamworth Hospital here in New South Wales, but I looked after right up to the Queensland border. But all those communities out there, when they, uh, somebody from those communities ended up in Tamworth, they did not know anybody else. So I was employed as a uh, mental health worker, but I was supposed to to go, was asked to go and see uh, Artie so-and-so because she's in maternity or so-and-so's in um, ICU, blah, blah, blah. And the, the greatest thing that came out of me, of that to me was that <clears throat> Aboriginal people down through the ages, nothing's been, there was no cameras, nothing was ever rec uh, recorded, written down. It was all uh, verbal 
and we all are all great storytellers, but they're good. everyone's got a photographic memory. But they know Joe Miller. Uh, they don't have to see his name. You only have to mention my name. I'll ring him. So the old thing with the, the, the hospital system, they need more workers around to actually support the whole lot of the family. Um, that get out in the community that are actually known to they to not just one community, every community. Yeah, all this trust in there. The yeah, trust. great. Yeah, great, Joe. Yeah. So, uh, because if you want to talk to Aboriginal people, you don't lock them in a the room and sit in. You go outside and sit underneath a gum tree, and you'll find out more information by doing that than never sitting in a in an office. It's uh, inside of you know, flee or fight when you do that. And I've seen many, many times that people got agitated, oh, let's go here uh, outside and we'll have a cigarette. And you de-escalated everything. Then people started opening up to what, what, what the actual problem was because no one was listening to what they actually wanted. Yeah. Thanks, Uncle Joe. Yeah, it sure does. That's great wisdom. Thanks, Uncle Joe. Anthony. I simply um, feel, though, for the elders, when they do come to um, a health service, sometimes there's a language barrier, in particular up this way. So if, if, yeah, if they don't understand, they won't respond and they'll get afraid to respond. So up this way, we have at um, the hospital service, we have great um, workers who are on the ground, Indigenous workers who interpret for us and um, they play an important role in keeping um, the elders happy and um, keeping them keeping them going, I guess, because if, if they don't un- won't understand, they'll get a bit agitated, I guess. Or, but having these Indigenous workers in the field is very important for um, successful delivery of um, great outcomes, I guess, and towards closing the gap and all of that too, yeah. So, mm. Great, Anthony. Thank you. And can I, I just say something about yeah. uh, Anthony's comment? Yeah. That language barrier, that is a big thing, uh, and especially in mental health because uh, Probably 85% of the doctors uh, in mental health are from India uh, and um, uh, the African nations, and very, and their language, you know, like uh, uh, they're very hard to understand. So that was a big issue with uh, mental health. And not only just with Aboriginal people, but the other mental health patients. So the language thing played a big, big role in how people react. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, so having yeah, having peer workers or people who understand the okay. language, yeah, yeah, helps. Thanks, and Uncle Joe. Maddie. Yeah, so I think um, the role that, yeah, elders play in keeping or acknowledging if an organisation is safe and trustworthy can be built a few different ways. And I think uh, Anthony covered some really good ground about um, what, 
you do within your service, um, having those translators available. Um, also, um, as Uncle Joe was saying, is like doing it in culturally safe environments when you're doing treatment um, or assessments, you know, going out on country, being outside instead of sitting in one of those clinical rooms, all of those things that you do as an organization to remain, you know, culturally safe and culturally responsive are really crucial to building trust with all Aboriginal people you work with, um, but particularly elders. And I think another thing too often is uh, we wait almost, I think, to kind of for people to come to us, but we often know when people are um, do, like are unwell, it's not often that they're going to reach out for support, unfortunately. Um, and often it's a lot of community outreach that we need to do um, as services to best support the communities that we work with, but particularly for First Nations people, uh, given the long history of a lot of mistrust um, and abuse within these systems, we can understand that there is a lot of hesitancy to go and access services and support. So I think Ensuring that your service is culturally safe and responsive in the things that you do, whether it be, you know, having up posters around that signify instantly that you are this safe organization, working within a social and emotional well-being model are really crucial. But on the other hand, it's also that outreach perspective. So going to community events, being around, being a face that's known, I think is really important. And making that effort to connect in with elders, to connect in with community is really crucial if you want um, to get kind of that approval from elders that this service is somewhere that's culturally safe. Because as Uncle Joe was saying, someone might not quite remember the service or this thing, but they might remember that, hey, Uncle Joe went there and he said that it was pretty good. So I think maybe I can go. Maybe this seems like a safe place. So I think just keeping those two factors um, in mind are really crucial. Yeah. Great, Maddie. Thank you. Anthony, you've told me about 90% of the consumers you work with are Torres Strait Islander peoples. As a peer support worker, what have you seen elders do to encourage Torres Strait Islander peoples to engage with support for social and emotional wellbeing? And what role can elders have here? Well, from my experience, when I first got unwell, I was referred here. Uh, I had a huge stigma with coming here to this service. But here I am today, I survived and everything was sweet. So I thank the elders for referring me to um, the mental health AOD service. So I was a mess and um, I seem to have pulled through and with great support from the team here also, um, without their advice. I guess elders have that, they have a, a comforting spirit, so having them in mental health services also goes a long way to help with your um, well-being, I guess, and uplifting because everybody has, um, everybody has strong belief in something. So having them guiding you through the service also and being a peer worker, being there for ones who come to the service, using myself as a um, bearer of hope, um, is a pure example of how we can um, encourage ones to come forward to the service, yeah. Brilliant. Anthony. I love that expression, bearer of hope, too. It's such a nice, yeah, phrase for what you do in your peer support work. Great. Okay. What practical things, then, can non-First Nations health practitioners working with First Nations people as clients and patients do to support social and emotional well-being well, social and emotional well-being and to encourage that connection with elders, 
um, intergenerational sharing, culture, and identity? Well, number one, and I did this in Queensland, uh, I connected the psychologists and the psychs uh, with the community and the elders of that community because, number one, the, because of the trauma and past things that have happened to Aboriginal people, there's no trust. So, number one, you have to build trust. Then you have that trust, you build respect because if that Aboriginal community respects your service, they will attend. But if there's no trust there, you're pushing the bar uphill. Um, so what I did, I used to, uh, the interns, uh, psychs and psych, uh, psychologists, I used to give them uh, cultural training. Then I took them up. I took them up to Sherbrooke and um, introduced them to the community up there. And I showed that they they never had, because uh, I always laugh when I think about this. In that little group, there was a Iranian, there was a, a, a Bangladesh, there was a Chinese, a Japanese, and an Israeli, plus a um, Brazilian. That was a mixture, a cultural mixture. But none of them never been to an Aboriginal mission. And I tried to tell them because just because they come from Sherberg, don't think that they're all friends. Because this is the old story. This is the storytelling. Because in at Sherberg, there were 42 different tribes, 42 different languages that put there in the first place. And when they put where they when they were put there, some of those uh, nations they were what the world called nations. They were at war with one another, and it was became it's still generational stuff. Two hundred years later. Right, and that's what white Australians and white practitioners need to understand. Um, just because they're Aboriginal people, it doesn't mean to say that they, they get along. Right, so so that all comes back is building that relationship, building trust, building relationships, and respect comes out of that. And once they've done that. They need to be listened to what, if there's an Aboriginal worker in that community, consult him yeah. or her yeah. Yeah. Uh, to what's actually happening. Great. Yeah, great points, Uncle Joe. Thank you. Maddie. Yeah, so I think uh, on the individual level for the clinician themselves, it's really important for you to be aware of your own kind of cultural knowledge, your own biases that you may possess um, and just continue to be reflective upon that. Uh, also to show that genuine curiosity to um, the other person's culture. Um, I think, 
you know, there's been a lot of interesting research and also things that I've heard in discussions with colleagues around a lot of fear to work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people for fear of getting it wrong. And often by not saying anything, it's doing more harm than, you know, giving something a go and being genuinely curious about culture. Because um, if you ask a question that's, you know, not appropriate, you can always come back and apologize. And more often than not, um, if it's knowledge that isn't for you, if it's uh, kind of that sacred cultural knowledge, an Aboriginal person will tell you that. Um, but showing a genuine interest in someone's culture is crucially important. And I think not having the fear, um, you know, not having that fear of being afraid to ask about culture, because by not asking about culture, you're not respecting the principles of social and emotional well-being, and you're not seeing that person for who they are and what builds their health. So ensuring that you ask and you be genuine about this and it's okay if there are mistakes made but you know ensuring that you are apologizing for those when it happens um and also to just building that relationship with community building your reputation as someone who is you know a safe and trusted organization a safe and trusted um clinician as an individual too and i think often I know that there's a lot of desire to want to engage, but sometimes those practicals can seem really difficult, but it truly is about the relationships and getting to know someone for who they are that is really, really important. So going to community events, talking to people, meeting elders, finding ways to connect. Um, You know, you can call the local Aboriginal Land Council to find out about events or to find out about who might be an elder to speak to in that space or contacting um, Aboriginal Controlled Health Services to talk to their um you know, community elders, their health professionals there. Um, and doing that is kind of the engagement way. So you can find out more um, relationships, take time, and you've got to build them up slowly. And, um, you know, it's really important that you put in that time and you put in that effort to the communities that you do work with, because it's going to be a very fruitful return for you as building um, up that kind of cultural competence and responsiveness as an organization, but also, you know, as a human being too. Yeah. Yeah, thanks so much, Maddie. Great, um, great advice there, yeah, Anthony. Yeah. Oh yeah, sorry, Uncle Joe. Just following up on uh, Maddie's answer there. It's you know, um, if you're not too sure, you ask the clarification. Now, I was part of uh, doing a book, putting a book out um, for stroke. And now we, it took us two years to do that, but we went back to all those communities and seeked clarification on what they actually said and what they actually meant. So a lot of clinicians that I've worked with, uh, they what they assumed they meant this, but they didn't mean this. So it ended up... Uh, misdiagnosed or, or, or um, given them uh, the wrong medication uh, because the clinicians assumed instead of saying to this person, yeah, well, I heard you say that um, <clears throat> this, what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. So clarifying and checking, uh, for understanding. Checking. Yeah, great, Uncle sure. Joe. Yeah, yeah. Anthony. Oh, sorry, go on. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, go well, on. Sorry. That, that mm. just builds that you actually care yes. for that person. Yes. And then rather than you, yeah. so you built that relationship, so it's more, the person more likely to come back to you. True, true, yeah. 
yeah, yeah. there's an honesty in the relationship too. There's a there's a comfort with checking in about that as well. Yeah. 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 Great. Mm. Anthony. Yeah, I agree with Uncle Joel. Always take the time to ask, um, ask questions and inquire, um, get involved in the community, you know, attend uh, festivals. We recently had a cultural fest, I believe the Queensland Health team performed, so had mixed mob island dancing and participate in local events, Floral Fridays, we also have a cultural competency course um, similar to other areas where it's mandatory to complete this training um, just to have a, a sound knowledge of what really goes on in the um, community there. And um, if there are language barriers, provide a cultural liaison officer who can translate, as I mentioned before, and provide workers that can um, be the leeway, like for example, myself, um, peer workers who can assist um, with both sides of the story and keep everyone happy, I guess, so that what we're trying to do in a professional manner, keep everything, keep everything professional and, um, the patient will get better eventually, but if it's going to be negative one side and clash this way and, you know, then it's going to be a difficult process to achieve what we're trying to achieve in a professional service. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great. Thanks, Anthony. Yeah. Um, in terms of um, connection, um and yeah, building building that connection. Maddie, has your research given any insights into how we can connect more? Yeah, I think it really does come down to what we have spoken about is just that outreach as, you know, health practitioners into the community is really crucial. Um, and also too, um, in some other work that we've been doing where we've been talking with young people about, you know, about their experiences of social and emotional well-being. Um, it was quite interesting is that a lot of the young people identified that when they were undergoing treatment for their um, mental health concerns, that culture was never brought into the discussion. Or if it was, it was often a tick box and it felt really um, inauthentic to who they were and they felt like they weren't able to then share um, about their identity, about their culture, um, and subsequently uh, finish treatment early. They didn't continue on with it. And I think that really highlights how important it is um, that we do ask about culture and we make that connection with the people that we are treating. Um, because a lot of young people um, in the study have said that culture is a really big part of their identity and they wanted to be able to share about it, but they weren't able to because they felt like they weren't being asked about it and they didn't feel they could then bring it in to the space. So I think there that kind of, you know, highlights a really important element of asking about culture, bringing that into the service. Um, and you can do that in lots of ways, you know, directly asking about it, having signs that are visible that show, you know, this is a safe organization, having artwork, we've got beautiful artworks, you know, doing things that signify this is like a culturally safe place. Um, it's also then going to help too with connecting more with elders because people aren't going to even enter a service if you know, there's no signals of cultural safety. If there's been no kind of word of mouth from community about 
this is a safe or okay service. And so I think continuing to do that work internally, but also continuing to do outreach um, is really important. And um, interestingly too, I think when I've spoken with community, it's that people do want to have these discussions. We want to talk about how we can improve, you know, social and emotional well-being. We all actually want the same thing here, but then there becomes this fear um, of having these discussions. So I think it's really important that we just, we make, you know, you know, we aim to continue to have these discussions, even though it's going to be hard, even though we might get things wrong. Um, and that's, you know, that's okay. This is part of the process, but ensuring that connection and relationships is at the forefront of all that you're doing is really important to build those kind of connections to the community and elders. Yeah. Yeah. And and showing that curiosity about culture as well, it sounds like. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, definitely. Good. Good. Um, any body language and language that non-First Nations health workers can be aware of in particular? I think, yeah, so it's really important, I think, as um, Anthony was saying as well, around that cultural competency training um, and doing that. I always find it really interesting is that if you go into a room of psychologists or other health professionals, um, when asked if clinically, you know, competent, it's seen as like not a checkbox. It's like a scale that we're always continuing to improve and work on. But with cultural competency, I think we've kind of almost dichotomized it where it's like, yeah, I either am or I aren't. It's just this one tick box because I've done this one training, but that's not really how cultural competence works at all. Cultural competence is an ongoing learning journey that we're all on the same way as our clinical competence that we always want to continue learning and growing. And I think What's really important is that there are going to be differences in body language, in the way that a space is set up, in the language used to describe um, what's going on for that person that's presenting, but it will be individualized and different depending on whereabouts that you're working. Um, For some Aboriginal people, giving eye contact is seen as really disrespectful, whereas often as a clinician, you might see that as disengagement. So it's really important to check in with things like that and just be led by your client, even gently asking, you know, um, I'm noticing that you're not um, looking at me at the moment and I'm just curious, what's what's that about? Are you feeling nervous? Is this, you know, that? Um, things like that can really help to give a better understanding for both people what's happening, but continuing to build up your cultural competence, particularly specific to the area that you are working in, because it will be really different. Um, And as Uncle Joe was saying, you'll get a really big shift in body language from when you do something in a clinical space. Often you're going to see a lot of kind of shut off body language because that fight or flight has been activated because of the history um, of mistrust and abuse within service previously versus if you get... um, mob out on country, having a walk, having a talk outside, um, you're going to see a very big difference there. So I think just being aware of those different things, continuing to build up your cultural competence, but also being led by your client because, you know, we are not a homogenous group of people. We're very diverse. So, um, you know, and I really love this question too, Sarah, because I think it is a really important consideration we think about and how we can improve our our work with mob. Um, and I think, yeah, it's just taking that individualized approach that's followed by the client, but being aware that there is going to be differences. Yeah. 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 Great. Thank you so much, Maddie. Um, Okay. Maddie, what kinds of research is needed in the area of health practitioners working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples? Yeah. um, So much, I think. So, so much. Um, I think 
really what's most important is that we need more research that is led and designed by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, for me personally, from my own, you know, lived experience, my experience of being a clinician, um, I see that measurement is a really important area that we should be looking at. Um, I acknowledge that's a little bit biased given that's my PhD topic, but um, as a practitioner who's always using assessment tools, I think understanding the measurement element of these, um, you know, of these constructs that we're doing and improving our measurement is really crucial. Um, but I think there are incredible, incredible First Nations researchers and health practitioners and people with lived experience out there who have really great ideas that are driven by community knowledge and needs. And I think that's where we really need to put our investment into. Brilliant. Brilliant. Anthony, what are your top tips for health practitioners who are working with Torres Strait Islander peoples? Um, come to community events, um, get involved, learn a little bit of lingo, um, learn some language here. When you come into community, be aware that um, there's strong Indigenous culture and um, we're very friendly, family-orientated people and we're a very relaxed environment. So um, top tips would be have good friendships. Um, yeah. And... How come and have some kai kai or some food with us? Yeah. yeah beautiful. Beautiful. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Thanks, Anthony. Uncle Joe, what wisdom do you have for health practitioners for how they can best engage and support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's well-being? Well, number one, seek out the Aboriginal uh, workers that are in your space uh, and ask questions. Um, improve your knowledge of what Aboriginal trauma is for a start that led to well-being and social emotional stuff. Um, just I was saying earlier about I, I taught these young uh, psych, psychologists and whatever, and what amazed me was that they all ended up brilliant clinicians. Uh, the Jewish fellow, I used to say in about 1940. Uh, 1919, and he would correct me. Uh, it was actually uh, August in 1919 on such and such a date. So he went away and did all his homework, and it showed me that he was actually re uh, interested in Aboriginal culture. So when he sat down with somebody, he could actually talk to them in their own lingo and with the area that they come from and what happened there and blah, blah, blah. And that reconnected him with a whole lot of that community. So I realised doctors and clinicians are really big, but if they take the time, and just in a general yarn, you don't have to be sitting in a classroom learning anything. You're just in general conversation, you will learn because that's how I've learned. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Thanks, Uncle Joe. And finally, how will each of you celebrate for our elders as part of NADOC Week? Is there anything that each of you are doing? Uncle Joe. Well, I'm going to an elders' luncheon, so hopefully oh, beautiful. I wait, wait, waited on, so. <laughs> and deservedly so. Wonderful, Uncle Joe. Maddie. 
yeah, I'm planning to go to some community events with some of my uh, friends, which I'm really looking forward to. Beautiful. And Anthony? Yes, same. Um, I'll be going to some community events representing the organisation I work for and getting involved with the elders by singing along with them, you know. They have all the great um, stories to share and providing some tea and damper for them too. So, oh, yeah. beautiful. Beautiful. Well, I'm, I'm going to invite you down to my place. All right. <laughs> uh, you can sing and you can dance because that's what I'm going to do and organise when I leave here. <laughs> Sounds good. But you're Terrific. quite welcome, here, brother. <laughs> Terrific. Well, thank you so much to the three of you um, for coming today, for sharing your expertise and wisdom. I really, really appreciate it for this conversation. Um, for all those who are listening, there are some great e-mental health tools um, that can um, that are particularly um, good for you. Um, to you with use with your own and your patients' mental health. Thirteen Yarn is a um, crisis support um, uh, number, and it provides um, culturally safe um, and confidential uh, confidential space to yarn about needs, worries, or concerns. WellMob is a really great online resource for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, Black Rainbow is a national volunteer Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, LGBTIQA plus. SB, sister, boy, or brother, girl, social enterprise, um, which is also really great. And there are some beautiful resources on the AMHRC, New South Wales Aboriginal Health Medical Research Council of New South Wales. And finally, iBobbly is Australia's first wellbeing self-help app for young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, and that's for ages 15 up, and that's from Black Dog. And then I actually want to mention one more, one more AIM High, H-I, why is another one that's just come out that I've um, recently heard of um, that has good evidence behind it too. And that's again for um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people. So um, in terms of those who are listening today, in terms of supporting your mental health, the Essential Network for Health Professionals is free and available to all of you. Um, it's known as 10 and it's got a whole lot of really good modules that you can work through to support your own um, mental health. So it includes um, things like uh, self-guided mental health screening, which is anonymous. Um, it's got um, lots of great tools and resources. And particularly, I want to draw your attention to the burnout um, module. It's got a really fantastic module on burnout, which is new and which um, people have been responding really, really well to. So I encourage you uh, also to have a look at that, everyone. Um, so I invite you to connect with Black Dog Institute. We've got a whole lot of health professional training. This can be done in person or via Zoom. And you can also follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. So um, for any further questions, please contact us at, um, at Black Dog. And I would just like to extend my warmest thanks to our wonderful panellists today. Uncle Joe, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your wisdom. Maddie, thank you so much for sharing your research and all your excellent tips. And Anthony, thank you for all the great ideas you've shared with us today about how we can connect and support social and emotional, uh, connect with people and support social and emotional well-being in a really um, helpful and um, respectful and caring way and show our curiosity too. So thank you for your beautiful messages. Um, a wonderful NAIDOC week celebration to all of you. And thank you everyone for coming and listening today. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, 
subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.